Welcome to Smart Software with Smart Logic, a podcast where we talk about best practices in web and mobile software development with a focus on new and emerging technologies. My name is Justice Eben, and I'll be your host today. I'm a developer at Smart Logic, a Baltimore-based consulting company that has been building web and mobile software applications since 2005. I'm joined by my co-host and colleague, Eric Ostrich. Say hi, Eric. Hello. And we're also joined by a very special guest, Mr. Jeffrey Mathias from community.com. Say hi, Jeffrey. Hello. So our first series covers Phoenix and Elixir in production. So Jeffrey, that's what we'll be talking about today. Do you want to just give us like a quick overview of community.com and your experience using Elixir and Phoenix in production across your career? Yeah. So uh, I'll try to explain community. It's a product that's kind of cooler the more you dig into it. And I, I've discovered I really suck at selling it. So I'll do my best and then we'll, we'll go from there. It, it, we are giving people the opportunity. And when I say people, we're talking about people with fan bases, the opportunity to interact with their with their community with their following via SMS via text message instead of uh, having to be stuck on social media platforms it gives them a lot better control it also means that you can actually we, you know we provide a phone number like you're you are texting with those people so we've we've soft launched at this point if you do a little digging on the internet you can find uh, places where you you potentially can come up with phone numbers for uh, Ashton Kutcher, Metallica, and uh, Gary V, Gary Vaynerchuk, and we're slowly rolling out more clients. But uh, and then we're trying to, you know, one of the big things we're doing is building tooling so that they actually really can manage that relationship between themselves and millions of people. But uh, and and again, you know, it's kind of interesting because it's through the the interface of that text messaging app that you already have on your phone. That's what I'm working on here at Community. Um, in terms of working in production, Elixir, I got my start in either late 2015 or early 2016 working at a company called Parkify. We were putting uh, sensors in parking spaces so that we could get live occupancy data. And uh, that, that system actually originally started as Java. And we started to introduce more and more Elixir as time went on, uh, initially as background workers. And then it started actually uh, started to do customer-facing applications as well with Phoenix. And then uh, after that, I was at a company called Enbala, which uh, is lo- load balancing of the power grid. And that was a pretty exciting and very different use case where we actually had hundreds of thousands of assets out in the real world that were represented internally by gen servers. So we were collecting telemetry and making decisions on what to switch based off of uh, what the current situation was and what the, the current telemetry was for those individual assets. So that's pretty cool. Spent uh, a while at Weed Maps working on there and worked on building out um, the online ordering and driver tracking, order and driver tracking for in California, you can have marijuana delivered to your home. And so that was pretty exciting getting to do live map stuff. And that was both Envala and Weed Maps. We got to leverage the, the channels pretty well for being able to actually drive live dashboards. And with community, our biggest challenge has been scaling. And so that's where Elixir has come, in, come into play is just we get there are periodic things that happen that just spike our traffic really heavily and being able to, to manage those heavy traffic spikes has been great. All right. So what, what made you interested in using Elixir in production? Yeah, so back when he first really announced it, Jose was making the rounds. Jose Bellin, the you know, the creator of Elixir, was making the rounds, going like city to city, actually introducing Elixir to people. And I sat in, we had a there was a meetup, the Denver full stack meetup, and he did a presentation on it. And I watched it and it just right over my head. I was like, why do I care? But for some reason, uh 2014, 
I was sitting in a conference talk with Ben Tan. I'm trying to think. I think it's Ben Y. Tan Ho. I apologize if I got his name wrong, but he's the writer of the Little Elixir No TP guidebook. And, but I don't think that was out at that point, but it was a RubyConf talk in 2014. And he was talking about Elixir and something about that conversation just clicked for me. Shortly thereafter, I left SendGrid and was at Parkify, which is the first place I mentioned that we had that. And turns out that one of the other engineers there was super excited about it too. So Brad and I kind of put together a plot on how to get our CTO to let us uh, start trying out Elixir in production. And that started with background workers where we were just reading from a queue, processing data, and then sticking it somewhere else. And they just didn't cause us problems. Like the, the biggest challenge around it then at the time, especially was uh, figuring out how to get deploys out. But as far as once they were up and running, we had these simple little apps that were just bulletproof. And uh, it was a pretty, pretty, pretty cool way to get into it especially because the uh, first the first apps I ever wrote were actually just straight Elixir OTP apps and not Phoenix, which is, you know, it, 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 I feel like uh, Phoenix isn't as heavy handed as for, for those who are coming from Rails. There's a lot of people who really like if they learn Rails and Ruby at the same time, they're stuck. Uh, they're, they actually don't really know where the, the, the division is between the, the framework and the language. I don't feel like Phoenix has that problem in anywhere near the same um, stuff. It doesn't, uh, especially because it can't open up and, and actually change the behavior of existing classes in the way that uh, Rails happily does. But that said, I'd still it was still a really great way to get into it by having to learn OTP and having to figure out how to do a lot of my own background pro processing and stuff like that before I ever hit Phoenix, which does a lot of that concurrency and parallelism for you. But uh, yeah, so then after, sorry, I'll, I can finish up, sorry. Uh, so after after we got the that those little apps running, we started expanding and it started to becoming more and more of a platform. And at that point, I I was, I was pretty hooked. I have actually worked pretty hard to make sure that I, the jobs I've had, I've had one job since then that, and that was just very briefly that wasn't in, in dealing with Elixir, but uh, I really enjoy the language. So what are some of the high level advantages and disadvantages of Elixir? In my experience, a lot of people, one of the, one of the biggest advantages, I, I mentioned the parallel, uh, the parallel work and, and the, the, you know, the concurrency, um, already and that's really nice it does make those concepts really easy but in my experience one of the biggest things is that it elixir and functional programming in general maps to the way that most people think about programming or think that programming should work before they ever actually learn to program and then we you know beat them down and teach them about object oriented pro, uh, designs and programming and i'm not against object oriented stuff at all that's not the, the what i'm saying here but it actually really is a pretty big mental shift to get to everybody's original basic concept of like just kind of going through things in a pretty detached way to instead there's this little ball of information and only certain functions that atta are attached to it. So I think mentally it actually, it, it, like for me it maps to, it, it's easier to, to think about in reason than object-oriented programming. So I got that functional aspect of it. The syntax is really nice. Uh, coming from Ruby, I, I, you know, I did work in Java, but, but, but the majority of my career was Ruby before this and having similar syntax is great, but a lot of it is actually uh, like, I don't read very well and um, there are certain syntaxes that are easier for me to read and parse visually than other syntaxes. So it's really nice from that standpoint. And the other thing I've noticed is that it like, you know, one of the biggest things I've had to do in this career is 
because there's never enough Elixir developers is teach engineers, you know, existing engineers who've got long, wonderful careers and teach them Elixir and the adoption rate, like the, the level of the speed at which people can pick up the language is actually surprisingly fast. And I think that's, that is probably its biggest asset. So I just named a bunch of things I really like about it. I think that from a disadvantage side though, I think the biggest challenge is the ploys and, and we're in way better shape than we were back in 2015, 2016 in terms of deploys and how to get them out the door, uh, especially with the concept that most people attached, you know, think of as how we do modern day deploys, which is you have some sort of artifact that you're dropping it into an environment based off of the environment variables. That's the only thing that's going to switch its behavior. So you're actually sticking the same compiled code all over the place. And that is not what Erlang was geared towards when it was originally created. And, you know, <laughs> Uh, to, to, to this day, a lot of Erlang's original design still shows up in Elixir. So one of the biggest challenges we had, you know, for a long time was dealing with the deploys. It's getting better, but everything we're doing is still, still has that feel of a hack to it in terms of getting releases out. And I definitely recommend releases over mixed run. Uh, we can touch back on that if you want, but the biggest thing is releases are still a kind of a big pain in the butt. Bitwalker, Paul Schoenfelder came out with uh, Distillery 2.0 uh, last summer, I believe, and that has helped us in terms of giving us flexibility to, to, to get releases out, but the actual system and process itself, itself is still pretty counterintuitive. I, so I think that the biggest challenge um, is, is getting releases out. The other one that I, uh, that I, that I come across um, regularly is that the level of parallelism can make testing hard sometimes and people get really excited. It's, you know, the language is great and then it supports testing as part of it. Like there's, you know, we, we barely step outside of the core standard libraries testing uh, X unit, right. For getting our testing done. So it's really great in the sense that that support was there from the get go. It was designed with testing in mind, but actually trying to figure out how to deal with a lot of the parallelism can be a challenge. So first of all, I just want to say that the, you mentioned like the accessibility of the syntax and that has definitely been a trend that we have seen with all of our guests or not, maybe not all of our guests, but some significant portion of our guests have mentioned that. I want to move on to some of the uh, like deployment system level questions that we have. And so I'm wondering uh, right now and throughout your career, how have you hosted Elixir applications? But back when we didn't really have things that were very good for uh, switching up reading from the environment, our very first pass on it was to actually have our CI compiling different versions for the different environments. So staging got its own version compiled, built out as a Docker container, and then we just deployed that Docker container. Production had that. And to be honest, it, it, it worked, right? Like it was not, and it was... It didn't involve anything that felt super hacky. We just had to compile it, and, use, and we were using system getenv in that particular compile environment had those uh, variables available. And worst case scenario, that's actually a, a decent fallback if, if people are struggling to deal with other stuff. And then there was the distillery 1.0 was a big shift for us where we were building things out in, in containers. Distillery 1.0 was great in that it gave us the ability to have a single artifact that could run in one environment. Oh, sorry, they could run in multiple environments, but everything that came in had to be a string. And there are times where you're actually pulling things from the environment, especially dealing with um, library code. Like older libraries especially weren't taking their configuration at startup. They were actually taking their configuration in via the application environment. And so you didn't have the ability to actually manipulate or change, you know, convert a string to an integer. And so that's been a challenge. So distillery 2.0 has given us the ability to specify that. There's been 
it's it's still feeling kind of tough. But right now, the way that our uh, deploys look is that we've got CI building out our our artifacts, our our binaries for the system, and then we um, build out Docker containers rel uh, relative or for that. We store those in a repository, a Docker repository. We use uh, key.io. And then our actual deploy system is using Mesos, and we've got a bunch of extra additional tooling running around that. So Mesos is uh, probably on its way out in terms of, you know, Kubernetes seems to be taking over the world right now. One of the things that it really brings to the table that Kubernetes doesn't have is it's significantly simpler. And like, there's no such thing as a small Kubernetes cluster. Like once you've got Kubernetes running, you've got you, or, you know, you're, you're in that, that um, ecosystem. And we're in a position where we initially got our stuff set up with Mesos. When we're using a couple other tools on top of that, um, some are custom internal and some are from a company called Nitro put out a, an actual deploy tool built on Mesos called nMesos. But they were, so we're using that stuff. And right now our deploys um, are, I don't actually um, personally like the concept of continuous delivery, but we're, we're basically a push button deploy. I've got a single command, a single line to, to run on my box to control the remote stuff to actually deploy, deploy from those repos. And so we're dropping, um, you know, we're, we're pulling down Docker containers. The environment variables I was talking about that are so precious to us, right, are, are done specifically by environment. And that's all done through configuration through the Mesos stuff. Cool. So for the, yeah. the Docker container, do you do, you do like a multi-stage uh, build? And then the, the final what entry point is the release binary? Is that... Yeah, so I'm trying to think of it now. I haven't thought about this stuff in about two months. Like trying to see if I could cheat and just go back and look at some of my Docker files. Um, so yeah, the the I'm trying to think. We yeah, I apologize. I, I honestly am, am not as awesome at Docker as I should be, um, especially because my <clears throat> brother wrote one of the books for O'Reilly. But uh, but um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, Docker up and running by Carl Mathias and uh, Sean Kane. Um, so yeah, no. So I, I honestly like I, I uh, when you say multi-stage versus not, I mean we're ba they're they're pretty they're pretty shallow containers. Um, we're not pulling a lot of dependencies in in front of them. So I'm not sure if that actually directly answers your question or not. I think that's the new recommended way if you look at the distillery docs. So I was, yeah. Cool. Anyways, with Mesos, this this is the f the first time I've heard Mesos in the wild. Um, <laughs> are you able to get uh, zero downtime deploys with uh, this setup? Yeah, and it's 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 the boring answer where it's ro rolling deploys and not hot code. Uh, you know, I'm gonna apologize in advance to anybody who was hoping those were the words that were gonna come out of my mouth, but um, we're in a position where we don't have to necessarily, you know, we don't have any long running processes that are so precious that we that we have to maintain that state. We do have processes that are potentially, when I say long running, we've got stuff that can take five to 10 minutes. And so if we're trying to deploy when that's going, we actually are, are we've got shutdown handlers that will basically start weeding off the connections and start refusing new traffic on those, but let them run until they're, until they're done with their, until they're done with their work. In the meantime, we're spinning up new, uh, new nodes and then uh, rolling off the old ones. And so our zero downtime does exist. And, and, and inherently the nature of our business or of our domain, there's a lot of queuing involved between our, our stages of processing. And that gives us a, a natural way that basically when, you know, when we send out the signal, we basically tell each of the servers like, hey, stop processing new messages, go through the rest of your shutdown. And so during that, and it, you know, we've got about a, 
about up to five seconds, five to 10 seconds where it needs, you know, they need to stop processing and then we move on. So we've got, you know, the, the apps themselves have shut down handlers. So we're just doing the boring old, uh, the, bo- the boring old rolling deploys, but we do have zero downtime. Cool. Yeah. It's, it's boring, but it works. Uh, and yeah. it's a lot more stable than the hot upgrades. <laughs> <laughs> One of, one of the, the our, our biggest challenge around that actually um, is that we have certain rate limiting systems that we have to pay attention to and recognize in turn in, 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 uh, in terms of our stuff. And so when we actually are spinning up new servers, we have to adjust the rates across the servers so that they're all recognizing, you know, because collectively they have to aggregate up to a maximum rate. And so we've had to we've had to build out. We basically query Mesos and say, hey, uh, well, actually, Sidecar at that point. Uh, I, uh, but we're querying the system and saying, hey, how many nodes are there actually running? And our nodes themselves are self-correcting to make sure that, and doing the math, figure out what their what their personal max rate or their personal their individual max rate should be and that's i think that's the biggest challenge we've had and it wasn't like it this is one of those things where elixir actually makes that relatively easy because we just have a process that just sits you know it's a long living process that just sits there and just you know uh, queries on a pretty regular cadence to you know to see how many there are in the system and just and each of the nodes do self-adjust adjust pretty quickly awesome so that, that kind of leads us to our next question uh so you have a bunch of nodes uh do you cluster them yeah, so you know it's funny. Right now we don't, but we will be shortly. The we actually have. I think our system is right now five separate Elixir applications with more on the way, and each of those have multiple nodes. The nature of most of them, we don't actually need that. Although that potentially would pre- pre- present a, a different solution for the rate limiting I was just talking about, where if we actually could just. Uh, do a pub sub broadcast across all of the nodes, then it, yeah, what the new rate should be instead of letting them individually correct. So that would be one of the few advantages in, in terms of like further back in our system, but our client facing stuff, we are right now our dashboard is built around polling and we are going to be switching over to um, being able to push stuff via sockets. And that's one of the easiest places we we could use Redis for the pub sub, but connecting our nodes, like our, our system does report, not only does it report how many nodes there are of each service, it actually reports the IP addresses. And so with that, you can connect relatively easily. So um, in our in our relatively near near timeline, we're gonna be doing that. And then when I was working at Weedmaps, that was the only that was the other place where we actually were running connected nodes. And uh, that was largely for the channels, you know, to be able to use Phoenix channels and drive a live dashboard. And uh, it, it you know, honestly it's nice. Like the the node stuff for the most part just works. You do have to pick parts of your domain where the consequences of, you know, any sort of uh, separation of your nodes. Um, my brain just totally blanked on the right word for that. When you have that... Uh, split? Is that... Yeah, it's not what I was looking for, okay. but that, that absolutely works, yeah. When you definitely want to choose it in your domain, like when you're choosing to rely on that as part of your mechanism of communication between your servers, you have to choose areas where it's okay if things are slightly out of date for a short period of time or... Um, you know, so the data that you want to rely on passing via those routes uh, has to be stuff that has low consequence if there are failures. But yeah, I think cap theorem might be the as the yeah. other thing I'll, I'll toss forward. <laughs> I guess. Yeah, and that and that partition. Yeah. In fact, yeah, that was go. the word I was looking for. <laughs> <laughs> the P and cap. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so that that's exactly it. Is like there. You know, we 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 got to the point where we introduced that and the front end, you know, our front end developers were, were actually incredibly pleased with the library, the Phoenix library that for, um, 
that that is the JavaScript library for uh, for dealing with the channels. Like they were, they really liked it, and it got to the point where our front end started suggesting like, well, could we use channels here? Could we use channels here? And we're like, hey, dial it back. Like let's like these are not actually ideal places. We need to figure out what does it look like if there is that partition. Like, what are the consequences for it? And so that said, from a user experience standpoint, when they're working, man, channels just really drive home a really clean experience. Yeah, I think there was a 2017 Elixir Conf, I want to say. Someone did a GraphQL API over channels. So just do everything over channels. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's really tempting. And it's funny, GraphQL actually would probably solve one of the, few, like, the biggest challenges we found, which is like, we're like, okay, we're here to write channels. And this was, you know, in, in the particular project, I'm thinking it was the first time we'd really tackle channels. It's like, okay, what are, what are the actual conventions for message naming? Uh, we, we're moving away from REST. We don't have these REST concepts of like post and, you know, these RESTy URLs. Like, what, what, what do we actually call this stuff? And, you know, we had to work with our front end team and actually design an API spec. And to be honest, I think that it, like, Fortunately, it wasn't huge, but there's a lot, there was enough inconsistency there that, you know, like going back and auditing, it's because we were kind of dealing with things as they came up. Like some of our original decisions were just awful. Um, and try, you know, and, and they may exist. Like there, I'm sure somebody will be listening to this as I say these things and screaming at me that like, you know, why aren't you just looking at X spec that already exists? But I couldn't find anything as far as like recommended WebSocket uh, specs. Uh, in terms of actual action naming and payload stuff. So um, we were using JSON API for our actual payload structure, but it uh, like the, the channels, the WebSockets themselves, I, like I still, I'm still waiting to see strong conventions arise uh, around what that stuff look like. But GraphQL itself could potentially, like could be one of those answers. Real quick before we move on, there's a thing yeah. called um, asyncapi.com. So it's a it's open... It's what Swagger OpenAPI 3.0 for uh, WebSocket stuff. Nice. Um, so that's that's something to at least document yeah. what you got. I don't think yeah. they push anything. Okay. Well, and that that ties in with like you know as much as Elixir is a magical in so many very various ways. Let's be clear. When I say magical, I mean fun to work in and does lots of cool things. It's not magical in the way that you write a line of code and there's 50 things that happen under the hood like certain other uh, frameworks uh, and language. <coughs> um, but <laughs> Uh, it's is as awesome as it is um, from that standpoint. Um, there are still a lot of things that are common, you know, like it hasn't changed how I work as a developer. And one of the main things that you know that I drive whenever I come to a company and the process doesn't already exist is whenever you're starting an API, one of the things you do is you work with your clients and you just agree, you document what that API looks like. Um, it's painful because nobody likes to write documentation. Nobody likes to do anything, but what it does is help you drive a consistent API. And so that would be, you know, so a tool like that for uh, documenting that stuff is great. And that, that without even having specific convention recommendations, that should be, you know, your first, your first stop. All right. So how does your Elixir applications, uh, compare to, I don't know, anything else you might've had? I guess this might just only go back to Parkify with the job. <laughs> It, it, it's nice. We live, we live, we live predominantly a world where performance uh, considerations just aren't a thing anymore. The the scaling that we can hit uh, is just is fantastic. Like Phoenix itself, under the hood, handles every incoming request as a separate process. You know, I, I, before that, I came from a world where we were running. Oh God, what was it? Unicorn or something like that, and then eventually Puma with the Rails stuff to try and just run 
literally entire versions of the application just to be able to serve multiple requests. And so that, that kind of horizontal scaling was, was, was challenging. Phoenix just out of the out the, out of the gate leverages the 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 parallel the concurrency model and the parallelism you know of the Erlang Elixir ecosystem in a way that like I don't focus a whole lot on that like I used to. One of the biggest challenges for us, and this isn't specific to Elixir, this is specific to you know any application you write, is just you got to make sure you're instrumenting your stuff and actually have full on metrics for what you know how your application itself is performing, and that and that's the biggest thing is that. Uh, for us, we spend a lot less time wor- worrying ahead of time about what is going to scale and what isn't, and it's more about instrumenting it and figuring out what we have to scale. But a lot of times, that just means, you know, with, with, instead of having to build out more nodes, we literally can be like, we can find bottlenecks in a specific thing, identify if it maybe maybe we ended up with a single gen server that you know, and a gen server has to handle its own messages serially, so it, it can potentially be at a bottleneck. Sometimes you take you, you take advantage of that. But other times it turns out, oh, like, hey, we weren't thinking we made this decision. And there are ways to actually remove the state aspect of it or, you know, pull it away from being a gen server and actually just a, a flat functional file instead. Um, so I think the biggest thing is that in general, it performs as well as we design it. And every once in a while, we get a little bit process happy and we're using processes when we actually probably could have gotten away with pure function. So our next line of questioning is around... Uh, like background task processing, libraries, et cetera. I'm curious, how are you solving background task processing? You mentioned earlier a little bit that you're writing your own, on, you know, on your own. I'm curious, like, what does that look like in practice? Yeah, so uh, I've tried a host of different different ones. The one the one I think that's, that's pretty well known that I've never actually used is Verk, which is like the um, sidekick style, the sidekick style one. My general go-to default is literally spinning up uh, like in, in you know like the very the fir- the very first pass I'll have on something and it depends on what it is but if it's a scheduled task or if it's something that doesn't have to be like exactly on the dot when it happens is it, you know but it's something that needs to be recurring regularly in the background is literally just start a gen server that then sends itself a message when it's done or when it starts it sends it uses process send after that actually could cover probably 80% of the use cases out there and um, it is simple, right? Like, and depending on how many jobs or anything like that you have, then um, like that, that would absolutely be my first place to start. And then you could start getting into other things that, and that I've had, you know, had success with, like, I believe quantum is one of the things where you give it a um, cron tab style, uh, you know, time schedule or whatever, and it'll kick things off. At the moment, we're actually leveraging, uh, uh, Mesos has uh, scheduling built in with cron style syntax and it's just hitting an endpoint to kick off work for us. But like I've, I've used all three of those with happy success and wouldn't tell anybody to shy away from anything. Again, I, I think the first step is to actually look at what the system itself can do or what the, what the, the beam itself can do. And you know, like the background or long running processes, especially something like that gen, uh, that gen server I'm talking about, like that, that's often a scenario where you don't even necessarily need it to keep state. If you do, then you need to be potentially thinking about how to back up that state and stuff in the event of crashes. But if it's not, then like having a supervised gen server that just sends itself that send after actually works pretty well. Supervision tree, you know, the supervisors, which is one of the like, which is one of the main features of the beam, is is that supervision tree. That supervision tree can guarantee, you know, all but guarantee that that process of it is going to be up and running. 
And then like anything else, you should have, um, you should have some sort of monitoring or metric, you know, some sort of alerting in case your job doesn't run so that it does, you know, that you do become aware of it. But the, yeah, first pass, look what you could just do with Elixir and its own background processing. Yeah, we, we started with, with Verk mostly as a, we were incredibly familiar with Sidekick and it's been yeah. interesting to like see how it's unwinded to just like, oh, that like, we just did a, a new project and it's like, uh, like this is the first real production server where I feel very comfortable with just gen servers and like, I know it's going to work. <laughs> yeah, um, no, that's, that, that's great. I, I love hearing that because it's, I, I, I think, I think one of the, the cool, you know, one of the very fun things about this, um, this whole ecosystem is first off, like as like the more I learn, like, you know, you, you see all these cool things you can do and then you go build these really cool things that you could never do in another language. And you're like, wow, look at the way I did this. And you show it to somebody. They're like, oh, you didn't know about, and they name X that was an existing feature in the language. It's like, the, the, you know, the, this Erlang has been around for 30 years or whatever. And it turns out that they too, like the, the developers behind Erlang were also aware of how awesome their system was, and they have been building tooling around it ever since. The downside tends to be that um, it's awful syntax, or it's really not intuitive, like by today's standards. You know, develop. I feel like development culture as a, as a whole, and, and Elixir definitely is pushing that. Is that like readable, clean APIs is a thing? And admittedly, a lot of the, the existing APIs in uh, Erlang can be tough to to um, to grok at first. But that said, yeah, it's really cool to get into these. Like, realize that a lot of the stuff we pull in is actually often overkill that um that really the core feature set of the language and the ecosystem of the beam actually will deliver those values so all right so we've, we've mentioned a, a few libraries like phoenix uh quantum verk uh and a few others is there is there any other big ones maybe outside of ecto that uh <laughs> Uh, jump out as, as stuff you use. All right, so there's a couple that are just good for maintaining code quality. Like if you're greenfielding an application especially, they're really hard to bring in after the fact, but um, Credo and Dialyzer or Dialyxer are really nice if you can build that into your, like from the very get-go. I like having that. People are gonna be, again, I'm sure somebody listening to me right now hates me because I just said Dialyzer. And again, if you've got a working, if you've got an existing project, don't, don't, don't hate yourself enough to try and pull it in. It can be a real mess trying to clean it up. But if you're going from the get-go, it really helps drive uh, specs. It encourage, you know, it, it's a way to encourage people to actually be specking out their public functions, stuff like that. Credo is great in terms of its static code analysis. Um, honestly, the biggest checks that we guarantee to have across all the, all the tools are actually part of the existing library. Um, our CI doesn't pass unless you run a check for already like, to use the formatter to check that the code is like whatever changes are already formatted. And um, then the second one is, uh, you know, mix compile force warnings as errors. They're not extra libraries, but they are features that I wish every project had from the get go. And they tend to be a little easier to add into the problem, into the projects after the fact as well. As far as like the, the thing, the libraries that show up in almost every single project I've ever worked on, um, I'm not in love with the API of it per se. It's a little too Railsy, but we use X Machina pretty heavily as a factory library. Um, every time I know that uh, Ecto, I think it was Ecto 2.0, they actually tried to drive it so that it was really easy to make your own factories, your own, like, own factory functions in there. And the thing that I've discovered is every time I go that route, because I'm like, ah, this thing is totally overkill, or even better is, ah, we're not actually using Ecto. 
I just keep end up replicating the same feature set. And at some point I'm like, all right, this is just getting silly. And there's a point where even when I'm not using Ecto, I just pass in a dummy name because you have to, when you use Ex Machina, pass it a repo name. But if you're never actually interacting with the database, you just give it a dummy repo name, like myapp.dummyrepo, which hopefully if somebody sees that, they recognize it's not a real repo and you still got the, the ability to, um, you know, to use those, those uh, factory functions and then we just build additional data type uh you know functions in that same factory file like if we need a phone number we construct our own uh helper functions to to do that so I, i'd say that that's probably um the like the one that i end up pulling in and, and it's surely out of laziness you know now that i'm used to the um that particular style of, of working with the factories um just kind of keep doing it i'm trying to think of like any oh i don't know so <laughs> I can't believe I just forgot this one. Uh, the other one that I, the other thing, and you're going to notice that both, both of these dependencies are pretty much uh, test specific. Uh, testing is, is, is probably the, the place where I feel the most comfortable. I use MOPS, uh, M-O-X, the, the mocking library built by Jose in response to his own article about uh, mock, mocking. I'm sorry, about mocks. I, I need to correct myself. Mocking is a, a noun and uh, mock is a noun and not a, and not a verb. Um, but we use that pretty heavily. And it's the point where like, I don't know anything I can't really do with mocks at this point um, that I was able to do in other languages. And, but it has a nice barrier to entry that it forces you to have behaviors defined for the things. That you're that you're mocking and behaviors are not heavily enforced in Elixir, but that actually does push us to have those standardized built-in interfaces for the stuff. And it also there, there there's enough of an overhead to using it. You will um, you really do have to choose when that is the route to go versus finding other some other way of dependency injection or um, just honestly centering your code around being uh, functional. Um, as opposed to actually needing to have those heavy reliances on outside on outside stuff. So I think that if I had to do this over again, I would actually name Mox as the uh, like the number one thing. Like, and then yeah, X Machina is helpful or whatever. But like, it 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 it's the the reason I like X Machina is because it helps me build out randomized data for my testing. And you should never you know you should avoid hard coded values in your tests as often as possible. But like Mox to me is definitely a bigger a bigger thing. And then yeah, Phoenix. <laughs> Do you have any third-party integrations that you've worked on that either pose any difficulty for you or uh, were interesting? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So um, I think one of the, so I've used Rabbit at a couple of different jobs and the, um, and that's, that's a, you host it yourself, but I think that sufficiently counts as third-party because uh, it comes with its own API. And predominantly, not predominantly, we, we pretty much exclusively used the AMQP library for that. And it works well, but it is just... And that's, that's uh, RabbitMQ, right? So the... That's Rab RabbitMQ is the actual uh, Q system. And then AMQP is the uh, Elixir wrapper around an Erlang library, if I recall correctly. And it's, it's about as far from intuitive as it gets as far as working with it. And for example, you know, and we actually had to marry a rabbit consumer with a gen stage producer uh, recently. And like, that was hard, but it still is like the, the biggest, like the, probably the biggest, the biggest uh, dependency in terms of like consistently across different companies that I've used. I think this is the third company that I've been using Rabbit with. And this is, you know, for anybody who's again yelling at the podcast, Broadway just came out last week. So 
And it actually, they officially started supporting Rabbit yet anyway, I don't think, but so that's why I had to do this stuff on my own. Although I'm lying, I say on my own, um, Jose Valine actually helped us a little bit with that. So, so I think I, that's probably the biggest one. Um, I'm still looking for a metrics, uh, metrics third-party system that I'm in love with. Um, we're using AppSignal right now, and it's the closest I've gotten to being happy with something. You know, given how much of um, Elixir is background processes, they really only provide immediate first-class like plug-in, like you, you know, plug-and-play kind of support for the Phoenix endpoints and Ecto, but. Like we're using Cassandra right now for stuff, and, you know, for some of our stuff. And we're reading off of queues, which have nothing to do with, with endpoints and, you know, with the Phoenix plug endpoints. And so we're definitely still having to roll out a lot of our stuff there, which is not the end of the world at all. It's just the only challenge is that it shows up in AppSignal as a different, in like a different screen on the metrics. And that, you know, that's, that's a, I think in general, you know, every, every running application out there should have you know the, some sort of metrics uh, system that it's that's, that it's interacting with. I'm trying to think of other stuff that we've that we've really kind of struggled with. I actually I mentioned Cassandra. We're still we're still in search of a, a driver that we absolutely love. There are or a library I should say. There's a the one we're currently using is Erlcast, which is a um, Erlang library. And you know thank God we can just jump back and forth and just grab. Erlang libraries willy-nilly. Um, then there's Xandra, and they both have, like Xandra's problem is it didn't have SSL encryption um, supported out of the box. Like it was kind of hard getting communication for the maintainer about getting that in, uh, added, um, whether it was us doing the work or somebody else. Um, and then uh, Erlcast actually just brings with it a whole pile of uh, awkward syntax um, because it is that an Erlang library, and then it, it uses uh, NIFs, uh, native implemented functions with a C++ driver, and that that actually has been kind of a pain from a build standpoint um, because the 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 C++ driver occasionally changes on us, and we've had to figure out ways to to lock into versioning on that. Well, we're going to move on to our last set of questions here. The first of which is: Do you have a story where Elixir saved the day in production? Um, yeah, so I think that the the biggest thing there is that when it comes to debugging uh, your runtime application, Elixir is awesome. One of the big reasons that I like releases as much as I do is the, uh, the ability to jump into remote console and actually interact with your running system. There is nothing like hunting down memory leaks. I think everybody's had, you know, some, the majority of the people who are listening to this have had the experience where something was going wrong. Their, their box is, you know, running out of its memory and then falling over, restarting from whatever, you know, outside services have that. And they're trying to figure out, excuse me, what on, you know, what on earth is going on? And so being able to do something as simple as just asking the system, hey, you know, like here's, a, here's an anonymous function I wrote that just asks for the top five, uh, processes in terms of memory usage and what are they? Um, and just being able to jump into your running application where you actually have the issue happening and you're not trying to simulate it or, or do something else somewhere else uh, has been absolutely huge. Now, there are some companies that don't want their developers touching production servers and that's that's a philosophical, a physical, philosophical choice of that company itself. And maybe at that point you have to work with you know ops or whoever it is that's your gateway there. But uh, the majority of the companies I've worked at, I've been able to do that um, and to be able to actually, you know, jump in and, and actually hit that, like do something like write that stuff or query the VM 
uh, on it. Um, and uh, this is actually the first company I've worked at where we actually have Observer running live against our remote servers. Uh, but that that would also be another way where you're not potentially at risk of running arbitrary code, but you're um, you know and whatever whatever issues can come with that, but you still can get a lot of insight into the beam. So it's not that you know a lot of it is we don't actually just see a bunch of the issues that we have just from the design philosophy of let it crash. You know, there's a lot of stuff that just doesn't come up as issues. Um, but when we do have them, being able to jump into the live running servers and debug them um, directly is priceless. It, I think I think at the end of the day, it's probably, I mean, it ranks in my top three about just one of the other reasons that uh, I like Erlang and Elixir, and I just totally didn't mention it at the beginning of the uh, of the episode, right? But uh, yeah, being able to connect remotely. And, and from that standpoint, too, if people are trying to wonder what their start is, like how to get into that, um, I mentioned remote console, but there's a book from um, Fred, I'm going to butcher his last name, even though it's really, I think it's just uh, Hebert, but H-E-R-H-E-B-E-R-T, um, but it's called Erlang and Anger. I think it was co-produced with Heroku, and like that is a go-to guide for anybody who wants to know. Uh, you know, all the concepts transfer straight over to Elixir because it's all about uh, it's all about debugging the beam and dealing with that. Um, but uh, and and again, I'll repeat the name. It's um, Erlang and Anger, and if you just search Erlang and Anger, you should be able to find it. It's a free PDF, and everybody should read it. Yeah, we'll we'll uh, make sure to link that Great. as well. All right. So our final question: uh, If you could give one tip to developers out there who are or may soon be running Elixir in production, what would it be? I have spent a long time, and this isn't even necessarily about you know production versus just kind of learning on your own. One of the most valuable when when people still start feeling like they really know what they're doing with Elixir, one of the things that they should do is go and implement the gen server module themselves uh, without looking at the existing code, just set it up, give yourself some tests where you build a, you build a gen server and you know, you have some testing around your gen server and then you uh, go and you know, at the very top of the file where you say use gen server, um, you should switch out uh, gen server for a module that you write and it should do two things. It should be, it should be a drop in play, you know, a drop in replacement for gen server. And it also should handle sending the messages, right? GenServer.cast uh, or GenServer.call, gen, you know. Um, but I think that going through that exercise is the best way to become familiar with uh, what's happening under the hood with the majority of OTP is just an expansion of what you're going to learn there. Um, and, uh, and one of the catches there is, you know, you've got to make sure that um, – you're handling messages on like cast that it actually is, or sorry, handle call. You're hand, you're actually making darn sure that the message coming back is matches the request you made. Uh, use make ref, just a, a little hint there. Um, but uh, like doing that is one of the things that really I've watched people. It just clicks in their head, and suddenly, so much of Erlang and Elixir becomes demystified. And so I would really recommend that for people. Um, doesn't you know necessarily again tie directly into getting your apps into production or running it there, but it will help you understand what's happening under the hood in a way that nothing else will. Okay, well that is great advice, and this has been a jam-packed episode. It went a little bit longer than usual, but I think that is a good thing. Jeffrey, we're really glad that we were able to have you on the show. Do you have any final plugs or asks for the audience before we let you go? Uh, I just throw out there, I am Idle Hands, at Idle Hands on Twitter, and um, sometime in the next, 
I don't know how long it's going to be. Sometime in the next uh, probably four months or so, um, uh, a guy named Andrea Leopardi and I are going to have a book out, or at least the beta version of a book out on testing Elixir from Pragmatic Programmer. Uh, we're working on it right now, and you know, again, I don't know the exact time frame, but uh, just keep an eye out for it. Um, I mentioned that testing can be, you know, some, there's some challenges in there, and we're trying to give people a, a, a reliable guide, at least to start on how to start tackling some of the bigger challenges in testing with Elixir. Super. Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining us today. Once again, this has been Smart Software with Smart Logic talking about Elixir in production. Join us next time for another conversation on Elixir. Jeffrey, thanks so much. Cheers. Thanks for having me.